As you head back to your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. To John chapter 1. This morning we're continuing on in our series that we began last week, a series through the book of John, a series that we've entitled That You May Believe. That you may believe. And we looked at the introduction of John chapter 1. And this morning we're going to pick up in verse 19. And we're going to read through verse 34. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And we're going to be looking uh, verses 19 through 34. So I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. This is what John records for us. He says, This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then? They asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as the Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. But someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. And all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him. But I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Here it is, verse 34. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us grace this morning to see the majesty of the Son of God. Pray that you'll give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And this morning, I want to I tag this sermon in our exchange Somebody ought to testify. Somebody ought to testify. So let me begin by saying this. There is power in a good testimony. There is power in a good testimony. Rosa Jimenez learned this lesson in a painful way. Some of you might know that name. She's actually been in the news recently. Just last month, Rosa was released from prison after 20 years for a crime that she did not commit. Her case gained kind of national attention with even 
NBA coaches like Greg Popovich and, and reality TV shows and we'll, or reality TV people, whatever they are, all talking about it. But she was released last month from prison for a crime she didn't commit. Back in 2003, it's kind of a sad story, um, but Rosa was taking care of her child as well as another one-year-old, nearly two-year-old, as she regularly watched. And on this fateful day in 2003, the child that she was watching, not her own child, began to choke on paper towels that the child had decided to put in their mouth. And Rosa attempted to dislodge what was in the child's throat and was unable to do so. And so she quickly ran to the neighbor's house to have them call 911. Paramedics arrived and they were able to resuscitate the child, but tragically, too much damage was already done. And the child sadly passed away three months later. And as tragic as that story is, it gets even worse. Because dealing with the grief in the midst of the mourning, soon after the death of the child, police showed up at Rosa's door and they arrested her. And the charges leveled against her were, were murder. And not murder by neglect, not, you know, not taking care of a child. They said that she forced the child to choke. To make a long story short, she was convicted of murder based on two damaging realities at her trial. First, the prosecution offered testimony from ill-informed experts that somehow concluded that there was no way that a child could have choked on their own. They literally testified that a one-year-old, nearly two-year-old, could not swallow a paper towel on their own. Not to make light of the situation, but I'm not sure they've ever been around children. But second, the defense, those ones who were supposed to be defending Rosa, they offered no substantial testimony to counter the prosecution. In fact, they only put one person on the stand they claim was an expert, and that person wasn't even an expert, and they spent most of the time yelling at the judge rather than defending or offering a testimony that supported Rosa. Even the judge says it was one of the wildest things he had ever experienced in a courtroom. And she was convicted of murder. It was a tragic accident that resulted in another tragic outcome. And Rosa was sentenced to 99 years in prison for a crime that she did not commit. It wasn't until the Innocence Project took her case a few years ago that, they, that there appeared to be any hope. And so what the, the Innocence Project did, their tact for court was simple. First, they convinced a judge to give her a new trial, saying that it was poorly executed. There was no real defense. She kind of got thrown to the wolf. And a judge reviewed it and agreed very quickly, yeah, this was a mess. Even the other judge said it was the wildest case he'd ever seen. So agreed to give her another hearing. And what the, what, what the defense did was simple. Their whole strategy, offer good testimony. Offer testimony about what actually took place. And so what they did is they just presented expert after expert after expert who simply testified to the truth that they knew. That there's no evidence of any malicious intent and that a child could absolutely choke on their own. And as a result, in 2021, Judge Karen Sage of the 299th Criminal Court in Austin, Texas ruled, and I want you to notice what she says, that there was no doubt that what occurred was a tragic accident and there was no criminal actions. And what the judge noted was that the testimony was sufficient to prove what was true. And when Rosa was released, she thanked those who were willing to testify simply about what they knew to be true. The testimony mattered. 
Once again, there is power in a good testimony. But here's what I want you to see. The author of the Gospel of John, John himself, knows the power of a testimony. And so what the author of John is going to do this morning in the text that we're going to look at, what we just read, is he's going to offer up a testimony about Jesus that comes from John the Baptist. Again, if you were here last week, you heard me say it. We've got to kind of distinguish between the two. The author John is not the same person as John the Baptist. So I'm going to try to distinguish them as I speak speak by saying either the author John or John the Baptist, but, but the author John is going to offer up testimony about Jesus that comes from John the Baptist. And again, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John is to offer a testimony. We talked about that last week, that John at the very end of the book says what the purpose of, of the Gospel of John is in John 20, 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is offering a testimony, and within his testimony is another testimony, inception, all right? <clears throat> Just had to make sure you were with me this morning. So John is continuing at the beginning of the Gospel to offer evidence that when it comes to Jesus, he truly is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And to make that case even further, the author John is going to turn his attention to John the Baptist and offer what I would contend is a good testimony. So I want to look at John's testimony this morning, and here's my hope. There's two things that I'm hoping to accomplish this morning. The first is this. I want to kind of dissect John's testimony to show you what a good testimony looks like. Here's the reason why. John's not the only person who should testify. He's not. We have been saved by grace. We have been brought from darkness into his marvelous light. Why? To proclaim his excellencies. We ought to be testifying that this Jesus, this Messiah, he truly is the Son of God. And so I want to show you what makes a good testimony a good testimony. But there's a second reason, and I want to make sure we get this. Even though we're going to dissect John's testimony, I don't want us to miss the one he's testifying about. Because if we miss Jesus, it doesn't matter how convincing our speech is, how eloquent our words how convincing our testimony. If we miss Jesus, we've missed it all. So I want to point out some things about John's testimony that may be helpful, but as we do, I want to make sure we don't miss Jesus in the process. You with me? You with me? <clears throat> all right, here we go. Here's the first thing that I want you to see about John. Uh, mine's not connected to yours, so you're going to have to switch these slides. So first thing is that John knew his role. John knew his role. Look again at verses 19 through 21. It says, this was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then? They asked him, are you Elijah? I am not. He said, are you the prophet? No, he answered. So let me, let me try to tell you what's going on here. John the Baptist at this point is in the midst of his ministry. He's been going at it for a little while. We don't know how long he's been doing ministry, but he's been doing ministry. We know from Matthew chapter 3 that John the Baptist has been preaching outside of Judea. He's been calling people to repent, declaring that the kingdom of God is near. And throughout the whole process, he's been baptizing. 
And clearly his ministry was being effective because as John 1.19 tells us, Jews from Jerusalem, so he's not in Jerusalem, he's outside of Jerusalem, but it's made its way all the way to Jerusalem. And so Jews who are in Jerusalem send priests and Levites to find out what this guy is all about. And we get a little more clarity about who these Jews are who send the priests and the Levites in verse 24. It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So the Pharisees make up half of the religious body that kind of rules the Jews in Jerusalem, right? So you have, you have the Pharisees who are, who are very much about the law. They, they, are, they are very focused on the ordinances and keeping the law. And they hold a, a sway of power in, in Jerusalem. The Sadducees are the other part of that group. So, so the question that we have to answer this morning is, why would they send people to John? Well, we've got to understand some of the context of what's going on. So two things I want to point out. First, we have to remember the significance of John the Baptist as a prophet. We talked about this a bit last week, so I'm not going to go into as much detail, detail but we have to remember that John the Baptist is the first prophet in, in 400 years. I'm going to remind you of what we talked about last week. After Malachi, which is not only the last book in your Bible as it's physically put together, it's also the last Old Testament book chronologically. Malachi says in, in Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And after God says this, right, after Malachi finishes, God is silent. For 400 years, he doesn't speak. Now, i got to press in here just a little bit, right? It's the pastoral side of me. I can't miss this. It's too, it's too much of an easy setup. There's something in this for us. Because John the Baptist's very existence is a testimony to us that the silence of God doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. And I want to tell you as someone who, who really struggles with this, Right, this isn't just speaker embellishment. This is one of my weaknesses. I've shared it with you before. I struggle with the silence of God. I tend to do fine when God says yes or no. Tell me no. Tell me no any day of the week. God, please do this. Please work in this way. Please make a way this way. This is what I'd like to see you do. And God says no. I'm good with that. Because right, I know that what he has instead is best. Obviously, I'm good with the yeses. All right, I'm tracking with the Lord here. We're on the same page. Yes, he's answering my prayers. But for me, silence can be deafening. And I'm often tempted to believe that God is absent in the silence. I'm tempted to believe that God has forgotten about me when I'm pleading and pleading and pleading. And I don't get a yes, I don't get a no. It's just silence. But what John the Baptist declares to us is that God never forgets. John the Baptist is a reminder to us that after silence, God can bring about the greatest deliverance. Because after God was silent for 400 years, and I have to imagine the people question. I mean, can you imagine? They've had prophets, they've had priests, they've had kings, they've been in the land, they've seen the blessing of God. God has spoken to them, God has shown up. They, 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 have, they have seen God move, and then there's just nothing. I mean, put yourself there, man. We must really be far from God. He must have forgotten about us. He must not love us. He must not care for us. Silence. But after God was silent for 400 years, he speaks through John. And the declaration was that the kingdom of God is near. The word made flesh is here. 
So here's what I want you to get. Don't let God's silence shake you from standing on his promises. Because sometimes, and I've had to learn this the hard way, sometimes the reason God doesn't speak now is because he's already spoken then and we just have to believe it's true. But let's go back to John here for a second because here's the second contextual thing we have to consider as we think through why they sent people to ask John about who he is. Because God was silent, people used the opportunity to try to build a kingdom for themselves. See, what was happening during the time of John the Baptist, and actually even before the time of John the Baptist, was that the silence of God gave sinful people an opportunity to try to build their own kingdoms. And during the time of silence, many people claimed to either be the Messiah or to represent the Messiah as a messenger for him. And there's an example of this. There's an explanation, if you will, found in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 5, the apostles have been in and out of prison because they keep talking about Jesus. How dare they? Once again, they're, they're standing before the religious leaders. They're instructed to stop preaching about Jesus. This is after Jesus has already been crucified, raised. He's ascended into heaven, and they're doing the work of ministry, and, and they're getting persecuted for it. And they're saying, listen, you've got to stop talking about Jesus. And Peter says in Acts 5, listen, we have to obey God. Do what you want to us, but we have to obey God. And the religious leaders are furious. They actually want to stone them right then and there, but they're afraid of what the people might do who are believing in Jesus, so they don't do it. But as they're trying to figure out what to do with them, one of the Pharisees speaks up, and we read this in Acts 5, verses 33 through 39. It says, when they heard this, so after Peter says, listen, we're going to follow God, you do what you want, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. And then he said to them, he says to all the religious leaders, listen to this, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thedos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up the day, in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And he says, you may even be found fighting against God himself. So even the religious leaders were aware of the fact that many people had risen up claiming to be the Messiah. And they'd kind of taken the tack of like, let's just kind of figure out who they are and let's just stand back and watch. Because they were smart enough to pick up that if you're claiming to be the Messiah and you're not the Messiah, it's not going to end well for you. And so the Pharisees sending priests and Levites to check on John the Baptist makes sense. There has been an ongoing attempt by many to gain power by claiming to be the Messiah. So it's speculation, but I think it's justifiable. The Pharisees want to see if John the Baptist is just another one of these people claiming to be the Messiah. That's why they ask the questions that they do, right? Verse 19, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. So they either asked or he knew what they were, were wanting to know. And he says, I am not the Messiah. What then? They, they asked him, are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Are you the prophet? So that's the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 
There's, God says in Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet coming up who everyone will obey his commands. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John t- teach us that that prophet was actually Jesus. But they're asking, are you the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18? And no, John the Baptist says. He says no to all of these. So they ask again in verse 22, well, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. So here it is. John knew his role. It wasn't to gain a following. It wasn't to become the best preacher in Judea. It wasn't to get the book deals and the speaking engagements. It was to tell people that the Lord is on his way and you might want to be ready to meet him. But I have to point something out about this, and I think this is profound and hopefully will be an encouragement to you. One thing I love about this passage, and if we move too quick, we may miss it, is that while John knew his role, it wasn't to be the Messiah. It was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Though John knew his role, he didn't quite understand how the Lord was using him. Let me show you. You go back to verse 21. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? Look at his response. I am not, he said. See, here's the thing. John said he was not the Elijah to come. Specifically, the Elijah promised in Malachi 4. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says of John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Now go back to John 1. I don't think John the Baptist is lying in his response. I don't think he's trying to be deceitful. He's like, man, I am really that Elijah, but I can't tell them, so I'm going to answer no and be deceitful. I think that though John is being used by God, He doesn't know how significant his role is. All right, y'all gonna make me work for it this morning. That's fine. Some of you in this room don't realize how much God is using you in the role he has you in right now. Right? Some of you in this room are thinking, my talents are wasted where God has me right now. Right? I could do so much more if God would just allow me to move to this position, to this occupation, to this city, to this stage of life. Some of you are asking the questions, why in the world would God call me to work at this job? Why in the world would God call me to be a stay-at-home? Why in the world would God not allow me to be married right now? Why in the world would God place me here? And what the story of John the Baptist declares to us is that our job is to be faithful in the role that God has called us to and trust that God is doing more than we could ever think or imagine. John had no idea what God was doing. And here's where it gets even more crazy. John likely never knew that he was the Elijah to come. Because in Matthew chapter 11, this whole conversation comes about because John's in prison. He got arrested. And John has a moment like every one of us, a moment of brutal honesty where he doubts who Jesus is. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, listen, I just need you to go ask Jesus one question. I mean, I get it. The dude has spent his life making much of Jesus and he's in a prison cell, soon to lose his head. And he just says, just ask him one question for me. Are you really the one that was promised or should we be looking for another? And you know what Jesus does? He starts quoting scripture to John's disciples. He goes to Isaiah and says, the blind will see. The lame will be healed. And he starts showing how he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, this is just 
This one blows my mind. This has nothing to do with my sermon, but I love it. John doubts. And then Jesus says, and there's never been a faith like John's before. Because I'm convinced that sometimes doubt isn't defined by the questions you ask. It's defined by who you take those questions to. And so John sends his disciples right to Jesus. And Jesus can still say, there's never been a faith like that man's before. But here's where it gets crazy. It says in the text, and then they leave. And after they're gone, Jesus says, and if you're willing to accept it to the crowds, this is Elijah. His disciples didn't even hear it. To go tell him the good news that, bro, you didn't know it, but you're the fulfillment of prophecy. See, John didn't know and likely never knew how much he was being used by God. And some of us this morning believe that God's plan is only rational if we can understand it. Some of us believe that God's plan is only good if we can see the goodness. But church, sometimes we just have to trust that God is able to do exceeding and abundantly more than we could think or ask according to the power that is at work within us, not just exceedingly and abundantly more for us, but exceedingly and abundantly more through us. But the only way we will believe that is if we know our place in God's story. You see, John just didn't know his role. The second thing I want you to see this morning is that John knew his place. He knew his place. Look again at verses 24 through 28. It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So this is the priests and the Levites sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. But someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal straps. I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So, so after John deals with their questions about his identity, they turn, they turn their focus on his actions. And they challenge him based on what he's doing. They say, all right, listen, if you aren't the Messiah, if you aren't Elijah, if you aren't the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, then what business do you even have baptizing people in the first place? Now, there's a couple of things we have to note about that, because that's a very interesting question. First, we've got to recognize that it's somewhat odd that John the Baptist was baptizing everyone. I mean, the Bible up until this point, so track with me here, the Bible up until this point doesn't have any category for Jews being baptized. It's never happened before. See, baptism wasn't an unfamiliar concept. They were familiar with the concept because what would often happen is that baptism was self-administered by Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. It was a way of showing they no longer identify with their pagan gods. They no longer identify with their old way of life. They are now identifying with the God of Israel. And so, so for proselytes, it's, their, it's self-administered. They would baptize themselves in the presence of others to show that they were converting to Judaism. But what's interesting here is that Jews are being baptized too. I mean, Matthew tells us in Matthew 3 verses 5 through 6, the people from Jerusalem, all Judea, all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. So both Jews and Gentiles were coming to John to be baptized. I mean, that's a question all in and of itself. Why in the world is he baptizing Jews? And to be honest, one, the text doesn't directly answer. 
But that's probably leading the priests and the Levites to question John's actions. Like, yo, what authority do you think you have to baptize? Like, why are you baptizing Jews right now? Like, we're their religious leaders. What are you doing? But even more than that, right, second is the fact that he was baptizing at all. And that's what the heart of the question gets at. The thrust of the question in general is, man, we don't even understand why you're baptizing people, let alone Jews. What are you doing? Now, here's what I want you to see. And there's actually a lot I could say about this. I have a lot of technical things written down, but I think I'm going to skip some of that because what I want you to really notice here is this. I just want you to see his humility. Notice the humility of John. I mean, how many of us, if we are called by God to do something, and we are being faithful to do it, and we start getting challenged, how many of us, our first response isn't, let me justify myself? What are you doing questioning me? Don't you know I've been called by God? Don't you know that God has spoken to me and told me to do this? Like, don't you know this is the role that God has assigned for me to play in his kingdom? He doesn't say any of that. He just points them to Jesus. Church, I wonder how much of our witness as Christians would be better if we just stopped trying to defend ourselves at every turn and we just pointed people to Jesus. Stop feeling like we have to vindicate ourselves and we have to fight all over. Now listen, sometimes, yes, you have to give a defense. I get that. But how often do we miss moments and just point somebody to Jesus because we're too focused on ourselves and our reputation? But he points them to Jesus. I mean, look again at verse 26. I baptize with water, John answered them. But someone stands among you, and you don't know him. He says, listen, you're looking at the wrong person right now. Like, you're trying to figure out who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. But the one you need is here, and you don't even know him. You don't see him. Right? It reminds us of what John said in our passage last week. It's basically what John the Baptist is saying, right? Remember back to verses 10 and 11? We looked at them last week where the author John says he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. Here's the evidence of it right now. The Jews, the chosen nation, did not see Jesus. And what John the Baptist is saying is you're trying to figure me out, but I'm nobody compared to this Jesus who is here. All right, verse 27, he is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. And what John basically says is, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. This isn't about me. Right? Because that statement, like, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, like, that's the low of the low positions. Because in that culture, Jews would have Gentile servants, and it was the servant's job to care for the feet of their masters. And what John is saying is, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. I'm lower than a Gentile when it comes to this Jesus. Again, this isn't about me. And church, if we're going to have a faithful testimony, what we have to realize is that this is not about us. I know it's easy to say amen right there, but it's also really easy to forget that. That the job that you have, the resources in your possession, the gifts that you own, the talents you use, none of it is for you. Everything you have was given to you by God and is ultimately for God. And it's one thing to say it's all about Jesus. It's another thing entirely to live like it's all about Jesus. And in other words, if your testimony is going to be worth anything at all, it has to be a testimony that points to the one who is worth testifying about. And that's not you, and it's not me. 
It's so easy to get caught up in our world so much so that we miss the fact that every breath in our lungs is given to us by God to proclaim the majesty and the worth and the glory of God. John knew his place. He knew this wasn't about him. But here's what I want you to see. This is where we're going. We're going to end it here. The reason he knew his place, the reason he knew his role, was because he knew Jesus. That's the third thing I want you to see, that John knew Jesus. Look with me again, these final verses, beginning in verse 19. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, this one you see, the Spirit descending and resting on. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Again, the final verse, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. So, so we've, now, we've now picked up on day two, right? So we can assume that the priests and the Levites have departed at this time. It begins as the next day. So now Jesus actually steps out. He comes forward. He comes toward John. And John's response is, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is who I was talking about. This is the one whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. Why? He says, because this is a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. See, what John's talking about there isn't just, it isn't just chronology in the terms of years on the earth. Because John was born first. He's saying, no, 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 because this isn't just a mere mortal man. He has existed long before me. Because there was a never a moment he didn't exist. But this is what I find fascinating. You're like, well, Michael, why are you saying that John knew Jesus? Because he says twice in the text, I didn't know him. And I don't want you to miss that. He says, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and, and he rested on him. I didn't know him. So, so here's what we've got to recognize is that at some point in John's ministry, John or God tells John, because we learn that it's God's the one who sent him. God says, hey, I need you to just go out and I need you to start baptizing people. And John's like, cool. Why am I baptizing people? And he's like, so that the Messiah will show up. And John's like, cool, who is he? And God's like, I'm not going to tell you, but I'll show you. Here's the sign. Somebody's going to show up and you're going to dunk him in water. And when he comes up, the spirit, my spirit will descend and rest on him. Now let's pause. We often think that because John leapt in his mother's womb that he always knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't. He didn't know who his cousin was. I have a feeling he knew that there was something about him, right? Because while John the Baptist is running around acting reckless as a kid, like Jesus is perfect in all of his ways. <laughs> like John's like running his mouth about his mom and like, you know, Jesus is like, well, honor your father and mother so that it will go well with you. And there'll be blessing. John's like, there's something odd about this guy. But John the Baptist never actually knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He grew up with Jesus. This is his cousin, not his like streets cousin. This is his cousin cousin. Blood. And he doesn't know. 
I mean, can you pause and just put yourself there for a minute? He's like, ah, here comes Jesus, my cousin. I get to baptize family. Yeah. Excited, right? He's probably thinking like, oh, you don't really have sins to confess that I know about, but maybe he's got some he's not sure, but I'm going to baptize him. And Jesus comes up out of the water, and as Matthew tells us, the, the heavens split, and, and the, the Spirit descends like a dove, and the voice of God speaks, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And it's in that moment that John says, I know who the Messiah is, but look at the faithfulness of the one who is willing to be faithful even when he doesn't have all the answers. And we've got to get to the place where we are willing to walk with Jesus even when we don't have all the answers. That we will testify when we don't know the end of the story. That we will believe that he is good when we are not feeling his goodness. John says, I didn't know him, but God was faithful and showed me. So he says, I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And church, can I tell you, as amazing as that is, as we look at the testimony of John, we have a testimony too. John says, I've seen enough to know. So all John could do was testify. Church, I got up to preach this morning to tell you that we have seen enough to know. Like there are testimonies in this room of God making a way where there was no way. There are testimonies in this room of God taking the most unlikely, underqualified, and ill-prepared and making us sons and daughters of the Most High. There are testimonies in this room of overcome addictions. There are testimonies in this room of deliverance. There are testimonies in this room of victories. There are testimonies of healed marriages and restored families. We have seen enough. But if that didn't get you, let me say it like this. Not only have we seen enough, but we've seen more than what John saw. Like some of us think, if I would have seen the Spirit descend, I would testify like John. Church, you've seen more than John. John saw Jesus go under the water. We got to see Jesus walk on water. John heard the voice of God give a one-time assignment. We hear the voice of God every time we open our Bible. John saw the Spirit of God rest on Jesus. We have been indwelled by that Spirit. John said he was an unworthy servant. We've seen Jesus be the suffering servant. John saw Jesus baptized. We saw him crucified. John was waiting for deliverance from sin, and we know that the tomb is empty. What I'm trying to say is that what John was looking forward to is the gospel that we look back on, and he hadn't seen it, but we have. We believe, right, that when we couldn't get to God, God came to us, that our sin separated us, but Jesus showed up, the Son of God, the suffering servant. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserved to die. They put him in a tomb, and three days later, he rose victorious. What the prophets longed to see, we have seen it. We've seen enough to know that this is the Son of God. And if we've seen all that, then somebody ought to testify that truly this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we've seen too much to be quiet. And yet if we're honest, we so often are. And I pray, God, that you would give us a boldness to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. God, we don't have to come up with anything cunning. We don't have to come up with anything clever or articulate. God, we just got to give a testimony of what we've seen.
And we have seen so much. Lord, I pray that this church, that Newbreed Church, would be marked as a church of people who can't help but point people to Jesus. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.